Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, European Rate Strategist, and I'm joined today by our Global Rate Specialists, Giles Gale, Head of European Rate Strategy, Blake Gwynn, Head of US Rate Strategy, and Theo Chapsalis, Head of UK Rate Strategy. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Bondcast. Um, lots to talk about this week, so let's get straight into it. And, and we'll start with you, Blake, this week for your latest thoughts on the US. Yeah, thanks, Imogen. Um, so I guess to start off this week, what we've really seen is the kind of higher everything uh, trend that's persisted over the last few weeks. It seems to be taking a, a little bit of a, a pause. 10-year um, yields slid by a ba- about a basis point yesterday after rising for about eight sessions. We've seen the same S&P um, 530s actually started to flatten a little bit. Um, we've seen spreads, which have really been leading this move, pushing higher. We've seen those actually start to retrace a little bit. Um, so it, it seems like that kind of move we've had for the last week and a half is uh, breaking in momentum a little bit. Obviously, we'll be pretty focused this week on supply. We've got 10s and 30s, 10s today, um, 30s later this week. Um, you know How the market takes that down, I think, is going to do a lot to kind of set the direction and set the tone uh, for, for the next leg of the move. And obviously, we'll have Powell, who, who we'll all be watching as well. Giles, it's been a busy week, uh, particularly for supply. We've had two heavy weeks of supply this week. So what are your latest thoughts in Europe? I suppose that uh, the answer to that question is that it's really just a reflection of what you've heard from Blake already. It was a very heavy supply week last week, and that was part of... Um, the mix for for European rates. But I mean, what was really interesting for us was that it was the first time this year that we've really seen uh, European rates participate in a global move. And in that way, it was really nearly one for one uh, with US rates. And and that's something we've been calling for, we've been waiting for 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 quite a while, but it was nice to see it happen. Um, Now, this week, it seems like people are just taking a little bit of um, a pause. Now, I think we need to see how people feel about these sorts of levels. Um, It it seems like people have been thinking a little bit more about how they want to position in case we see a bit of a retracement of the move but overall I would say that there is weak sort of belief in the possibility that this could continue. Great thank you. Theo over to you although I'm sure you're going to tell a similar story that the UK rate UK rates are now catching to the US as well. Yeah, the, the the UK is really participating in this uh, in this move in this backup in rates. Um, it's very exciting because the UK stood out as the market where rates were lower, and we there was a lot of discussion about negative rates, lower rates, etc. So this obviously changed as of last week, and um, the whole front of the curve is repricing higher. At the same time, the very important part is um, is is market perception with regards to additional supply. So this week we had a big syndication also in the UK. It was a linker syndication, a new bond, linker 51s. Now, while the bond itself was uh, easily absorbed, we can see that there's been a weakness at the bank at the back end of the conventional and linker curve. So yes, fine, supply does get absorbed, but the market does require higher rates. And also in the UK, we've seen the theme of steeper of a steeper curve playing out. Great, thanks, Theo. So 
Blake, one of the things that we discussed a couple of weeks ago was how was the quarterly refunding announcement with regard to the Treasury and the fact that they really provided um, very little clarity, I would say, a disappointing amount of clarity, given we were waiting for a lot of news, particularly around fiscal stimulus. Um, That hasn't really changed that much. But one thing that we uh, are clear on is that their cash balance is headed significantly lower in the coming months. Um, Can you just talk us through that and and why we really care about that, I suppose. Yeah, thanks, Imogen. Um, So, you know, as you mentioned last week, uh, we were a bit disappointed that we didn't get a little bit more clarity out of out of Treasury regarding, you know, what they're going to do with bills, where the cash balance is going. Um, You know, we kind of have some idea. They 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 presented some numbers uh, for the end of March and June of where they think cash balance is going. But we don't know what they're including in those forecasts. We don't know, um, you know, how quickly they'll get to those levels, whether they're targets or or really just kind of forecasts of where they think things might be going. Um, But I think one thing that, you know, the market and Treasury seems to be pretty sure on is that the cash balance will be going down. Um, You know, this is significant for markets. uh, And I think there's been a lot of focus on this because, you know, every dollar that the TGA basically draws down um, is another dollar that goes back into the banking system, um, you know, into reserve balances. Um, The TGA, as we call it, the Treasury General Account, this is essentially just a checking account that the Treasury has at the the Fed. Um, You know, they pay all the bills of the government, military, Social Security, all of that kind of comes out of this TGA, um, including any spending that's going to be associated with uh, an additional stimulus package that may or may not get passed. um, And also the stimulus package that was packed passed back in December, both of those are going to be helping to kind of draw down um, this cash balance as they write checks to basically pay for those things. Um, As they do that, that money then becomes part of the banking system. um, And and at the end of the day, we'll sit on some bank's balance sheet as a reserve balance at the Fed. Um, You know, right now, both of those things, reserves in the system and the Treasury's general account at the Fed are at or near record highs. you know, TGA typically is around 300, 400 billion before COVID. Now it's at 1.6 trillion. Um, you know, banking reserves similarly are, are near record levels uh, over 3 trillion. So really big numbers here. And, you know, if you think about this idea that they have 1.6 trillion in the account right now, Treasury does, if they take that down to, you know, 800, which is the number that they suggested they may get to by the end of March, or if you take it down to 500 by the end of June, like they suggested, you know, that's just that's over a trillion of reserves just surging onto the system that's already got um, over three trillion record levels. Um, And even now, um, the level of reserves that they have in the system are already starting to cause some problems. Um, You know, we've seen front end rates across the spectrum uh, uh, start to basically leak lower because of all this, these reserves, all this liquidity sloshing around in the banking system. Um, You know, if if you could kind of sum it up, you basically just say dollars, funding dollars has become extremely cheap. It's true for unsecured, um, LIBOR hit all time low. It's true for investors in other countries. It's extremely cheap to borrow dollars in cross currency uh, basis markets right now. It's true of secured funding. Um, repo has started to tick down to zero, towards zero the last few days, trading extremely soft. Um, and it's even true for the US government, who's likely to pay zero at, at some of the upcoming bill auctions to, to raise cash. So basically everywhere you look, there's just a ton of cash in the system very little demand for that cash. Um, and so I think that's why everybody's so focused on the fact that we're going to get this additional dump as, as Treasury starts uh, winding down this cash balance. So just to quickly recap for anyone that's listening, how can the Treasury reduce the cash balance? 
Well, so that, and this is one of the areas where, you know, we've been hoping for maybe a little more clarity on, they can reduce it um, just through the normal course of spending cash. Um, you know, that is money in their checking account. And if they write a lot of checks, that cash balance will go down. So if they pass a big stimulus package, uh, you know, that's something that will will help to pull that, that level down. Um, the other way is they could pay down debt. Um, so usually when they reduce their cash balance, it's because they are uh, uh, paying down bill supply. That's actually kind of an interesting piece because paying down bill supply, you actually get a, a double whammy here because if they pay down bill supply, you've got the cash moving from TGA into, uh, into the banking system via reserves, but you're also reducing the amount of bills in the system, which are investment options for, for you know, very short end investors. So you're taking away bills from the market and now money funds, central banks, other people that typically buy bills are gonna have to find somewhere to put that cash. So you've got more reserves in the in the system sloshing around and treasuries taking away places to put that cash by by reducing bill supply. So it's kind of a double hit if they reduce it by by cutting bill supply. Okay. So if we think about how this relates to the Fed, did they care about this? And if they do, what well, yeah, they do care. Um, you know, obviously they implement policy via front end rates. Um, you know, that's that's their main policy instruments is is exerting control over front end rates, and you know their their belief is that that kind of filters out through uh, uh, financial conditions. Um, you know, it's not that that having these kind of front end funding rates that I've been speaking about. You know, yeah, they're they're moving. Um, you, you know, from let's say ten basis points down to four or five, or if you have uh, um, you know, these kind of small, several basis point moves in these front end rates. It's not that that's going to crash the economy or that, um, you know, that really has an economic impact. But I think for the Fed, it's more of a credibility issue. Um, you know, that's that's their method of control. And if it looks like they don't have control of those rates, um, you know, people could lose faith in the Fed's ability to control the economy. So um, that's, I think, why they control, they, they care most about why these front end rates. There's, there's obviously some financial stability concerns here as well. Um, I don't think those are, are as important right now as, as the credibility issue. Um, you know, a lot of people point to SOFR in particular, uh, um, the secured overnight funding rate. This is the uh, uh, repo index that, um, you know, the market is moving to as they move away from, from LIBOR. This is the chosen successor to LIBOR. So a lot of people have pointed out that the Fed should care about where these rates go because SOFR, um, you know, is this new benchmark and they don't want SOFR to start um, you know, trading super low or, or to have a high amount of volatility. So, um, so there are things that they're watching there. In my opinion, I think they care most about the Fed funds rate. They have an explicit target for the Fed funds rate. They say, we're going to keep the Fed funds rate from zero to 25 basis points. Um, you know, that, that, that explicit target, I think, is really what moves them the most. And in the past, that's been the case. Whenever they get within five basis points of their targeted range for the Fed funds rate, we've seen them move and we've seen them take action. So, um, you know, I, I really think what they're going to be most focused on is where the Fed funds rates trades. And um, that has started to slide a little, but um, has perhaps not moved as much as, you know, bills or, or some of these other funding rates that I've mentioned. But it is starting to decline. And, um, you know, if we get down to that five basis point level, I would expect the Fed to take some action. And what would that action look like, do you think? Uh, you know, there's there's. A number of things they could do um, that aren't as direct, but the, the most direct levers that they basically hold over the Fed funds rate and, and, and turn all of these other front end rates 
are the two programs um, where, where they basically set the rates for. Um, so IOER or IOR, uh, this is interest on excess reserves or interest on reserves, um, not really that just relevant of a distinction at this point. Um, this is just the rate that banks get for uh, uh, basically having reserves at the Fed. Um, so the Fed can set that interest rate. Um, they also have an overnight reverse repo program. Basically what that is, is that money funds, uh, a number of money funds, banks, um, and GSEs, so this is like the home loan banks, Fannie Freddie, um, can basically give cash to the Fed in exchange for collateral in a repo transaction overnight uh, and get paid some rate. Um, this sets a pretty hard floor under rates because of all of these kind of front-end investors, the home loan banks, money funds, if they can invest at the Fed for a certain rate overnight, secured basis, there's really little reason for them. And there's no, there's no real potential that they're going to go out and lend to a bank for any rate below that. So it really kind of sets a floor under the rates. IOER ends up being kind of a ceiling. Banks can get paid this, this, this rate from the Fed. Um, you know, but I think this is a real key here is that the home loan banks, the GSEs who have reserve accounts at the Fed do not get paid that, that rate. So they actually have an incentive to lend to a bank for a, a level below IOER because then the bank can actually turn around and, and earn IOER on that. And there's some kind of spread. It's, it's a little bit of an arbitrage. So um, my guess is that the Fed, once we get to that five basis point level, they start looking at hiking both of those rates. I think a lot of people focus more on the IOER and a lot of the market discussion is focused on IOER alone. I actually find the overnight RP to be the more relevant rate. Um, it's a much harder floor under rates than I think the pull from the upside from IOER is. So if you really want to move the Fed funds rate, I think the best way is to push up that hard floor rather than kind of pulling it from above with IOER. So I think they actually move both rates, just move the whole corridor up um, um, five basis points to, to kind of push effective Fed funds rate up off of uh, uh, you know that, that kind of five basis point level. And then hopefully that will also pull other rates along with it. Great. Like, um, so now just switching over to Europe um, uh, with you, because uh, one of the themes, I guess, of the past few weeks is that whilst other rates in Europe have continued to rise, actually Italian bond yields have continued to fall. Um, in 10 years, we're very close to, or perhaps even at when this comes out, um, new record lows, um, driven by this confidence in um, the return of Draghi to the government. So, um, do we think this isn't still a done deal? So perhaps first you can just talk us through whether we think this is going to happen and the market reaction is the right one. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the market reaction is the right one and we do think that it's going to happen. So you know, very simple answers to those two questions, Imogen. Um, you know, the, the timeline is essentially that you know, probably this, this will come to a head uh, the beginning of next week and a uh, very strong base case. We think that Draghi will find the support. So, you know, on the market reaction, well, you know, we are back at very long-term tight levels for, for BTPs versus other European fixed income. And, you know, broadly speaking, I'll just say, I think that that's right. Um, it's not just because the markets, you know, particularly the bond markets, view Mario Draghi as being you know, little short of a miracle worker. So, you know, obviously there are legitimate questions about whether those expectations are 
you know, have gone too far or not. If we really have a, a kind of positive view on, on what Draghi can do in Italian politics, then what is there left to worry about in Italy or what reasons are there to not be long it, Italian spreads? Well, I mean, that's exactly the, the point that we've been trying to make, because obviously you know, people, people look at charts and when you get to levels that really challenge a long established range, they, they ask questions you know, along the lines of what could go wrong. And you know, I think it's, it's instructive to just take, take a look at what we, you know, where we've been over the last sort of five or six years. I mean, in 2015, you know, not only was the sovereign crisis still fairly fresh, in people's memories, but you know, we also had ongoing kind of you know, aftershocks from that with um, uh, with Greece, and then that sort of turned into uh, you know uh, I guess concerns about populism as a as as a global trend. You know, we had Brexit, we had um, you know, Donald Trump was elected, we had um, a change in uh, in government, which is actually a sort of relatively positive one from a market's perspective in in Italy with uh, with the coming of Renzi. Um, but then you know, that turned into concerns about French politics, and then Renzi uh, failed his um, uh, in his constitutional reform, and that then brought us to the sort of latest stage where we had um, a real blowout in, in Italian spreads and QE stopped and all these kinds of things. So there's always been things to, con- to, to, to worry about. That's the that's the key the key message. But now we have historically low interest rates everywhere. So debt sustainability, as we've repeated and repeated and repeated, really shouldn't be that much of a concern for for Italy. um, So much of Italy's debt is locked away, if not forever, for the long term at least, in the ECB. And we have all these other other European mechanisms to sort of assist this transition from this kind of crisis phase to um, a recovery phase. And we have someone with a a proven track record, an excellent communicator with uh, with markets. And, you know, I mean, frankly, a mediator who... As I say his, his record is, um, is, is, is really, really exceptionally strong. I'm taking charge of the, of, of the process in particular of the you know, writing a plan to deploy the, uh, the, the funds from this EU recovery fund. So, so all of that, you know, I think is an argument that we should at least be looking at um, Know, breaking out on the tight to the to, to the tight side of this range, but you know, actually we are increasingly toying with the idea that this is a turning point um, for Italian politics, you know, which is potentially more profound than just you know, the change of a government. Um, you know, this is about the the chain, turning tides, I suppose, of, uh, of global populism, and so you know, there is. Uh, a long-term story here, which I don't think is spoken about enough. Okay, so I guess that means as well that we could other factors which would then add more kind of downward pressure on, on BTP bund spreads if we think about things like ratings upgrades, um, which also could then bring about foreign investor demand, for example. I guess it creates, in some senses, this kind of virtuous circle of, of lower yields and, and lower spreads for BTPs. 
No, that's exactly right. No, I think that's um, you know, one of the the key ingredients for, for for certain kinds of investors is the rating, and we already said before we had this this possible um, positive development in um, in Italian politics that one of the surprise themes for this year could actually be um, upgrades, not downgrade pressure for for Italy. And you know while I'm not no, going to say that that's imminent, and it's something that we will have to look at in quite a lot more uh, detail in the um, in, in the next few days. But you know, it, it certainly seems like you know, that is a theme that we want to go with, and you know, it may may just be a question of time at this stage. Okay, great. Awesome. Super interesting episode this week, and as ever, a lot to discuss. So I hope everyone enjoyed it, and we will catch up next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Bondcast. Please do subscribe to our channel to get future episodes and like it as this will help others to find it. We also encourage you to follow us on social media to get all our latest content. Speak to you again soon.